husband and wife relationship. Out of that grows the family relationship, the third divine institution. And the last one is nations. That is the fourth divine institution as we have uh, broken them down here. Uh, as we can see and as we know today, all four of those are under attack from every direction. The evil one is gaining all kinds of ground. And so we need to know what we need to know what's right. We know what need to know why we believe it, and we need to be able to defend it. So that's part of what we're doing now is getting the ammunition to be able to respond whenever these uh, come under attack. So before we begin, let's take a few moments for prayer and prepare ourselves to study the Word of God. Let us pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for these days. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace. Most of all, we thank you for, our, for your Son and our Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray that we will be better able to understand the world we live in. We pray the Holy Spirit will be our teacher and enlighten and challenge us, convict us where we need it. We pray that we will be good citizens, good heavenly citizens, and thus good citizens here on earth. So, Father, may we become that in your name, for we ask it in your Son's name. Amen. Well, we are at point seven in this. The last one we looked at where we left off is that no nation exists apart from God's sanction. No nation is immune to his discipline or excluded from his potential blessings. And we looked at the passage in Jeremiah 18 that teaches just that. No matter who the nation is, if they turn from their evil, then he is going to respond, he's going to hear, he's going to bless that nation. And that is a, that's a, a great set of promises in there in Jeremiah. I know it's Old Testament, and sometimes people don't want anything to do with the Old Testament. But you have to understand the Old Testament in context and realize that there are certain things that, that do apply to us, and they usually spell them out here when it says, any nation shall do this, then and that's saying this is universal. It's not just for uh, Israel because the, the Old Testament was written primarily for Israel. And so we have to understand that a lot of the principles that we glean, they, they may or may not have direct application to us. The basic principles of divine establishment, we're going to look at them in regard to rights and responsibilities. We see these principles taught primarily via the Mosaic Law. Now, we are no longer under the law. We've come to understand that a long time ago. But while we're no longer under the forms of the law, we're taught God's attitude about various issues of the works of the flesh. So, <clears throat> 1 Timothy 1.8, Paul writes, We know the law is good if you use it lawfully. So we're not under the, the dietary codes of the Mosaic Law. We're not under the hygiene codes of the Mosaic Law. There's a lot of things of the Mosaic Law, like the animal sacrifices. We're no longer under the animal sacrifice codex of the, of the Mosaic Law. 
But what we learn are some very important principles as we study the law, study the Old Testament, and they teach us things about nations and national interest and uh, what, what nations, what's expected of nations. Part of what we're going to do in this study and in the, the next section, the next section we're going to do after this uh, uh, increment right here of rights and responsibilities is go through uh, how a government it should be set up. It actually should be set up to resemble the essence of God, the characteristics of God. And then after that, we're going to look at uh, what is our response to authority uh, in the church age, Romans 13. We're going to take a closer look at that. First seven verses of Romans uh, chapter 13. Then we're going to look into some basic principles of running a nation, kings, and what they should do and how they should go about doing it. So <clears throat> the first thing that we're going to look at are some basic principles of divine establishment, rights and responsibilities, and these are established by the Almighty. See, rights are granted by the Almighty, and they should be protected by governments. A government that is righteous is going to recognize the Almighty, and that's true. Most of the governments in the history of the world have not been righteous. Even a lot of those who claim to stand for the Almighty don't stand for the Almighty, don't function uh, in, the, in the proper way. But government should protect these basic rights. The founding fathers of the United States declared certain inalienable rights. That means that they are given by God, they're endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, among which are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So they were able to, to look back to the, to the Old Testament and the New Testament and say that, hey, there's some principles here that apply to everybody, and we want to establish a nation that gives these the opportunity to function the way that God uh, established them. So <clears throat> they should be protected by governments. The first one we're going to look at, the first right, is personal freedom. Now, we get principles taught in the New Testament, principles of the Old Testament, but this is taught actually all the way back to the Garden of Eden. But uh, for those that like New Testament verses, Galatians 5.1 is for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm. Don't be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Now, he's talking about there the slavery of legalism. Because in the context of Galatians, people have added to the law. Back in chapter 2, <clears throat> Peter got involved with the circumcision party. And they were starting to add things in to what one must do to be saved. And the circumcision uh, party, if you will call it, sect group within Christianity, said that the men had to be circumcised according to the law of Moses uh, if they wanted to be saved. And so Paul is writing against that. Peter fell prey to it for a period of time, and then he came out of it. But it is not a requirement uh, in the church. It was a requirement for Israel. Now, <clears throat> the personal freedom is the right to decide and then bear the consequences of the decision, whether it's for, for good or bad, for the, whatever decisions are made. It's often called, under the concept of freedom, it's often called uh, liberty because it's really the freedom to do what we ought to do. A Christian we have been set free from the enslavement of the sin nature. 
Now, while we may choose to be enslaved by the sin nature, the bonds are broken, the chains are broken. Do we want to stay there is the question mark. Because we no longer have to function in energy of the flesh because we've been set free from that. So we can do the right thing. Galatians 5.13 says, Don't turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. So here is this freedom. And in the early church, it's fitting that uh, Galatians be the first book written by Paul, uh, following James, written by the half-brother of the Lord. And, And when you find Paul starting to write, he knows that people are going to realize about freedom because they've been set free from the legalisms of the Mosaic law, and they're going to overdo it. They're going to abuse it. And that's why he puts verse 13 in there under the inspiration of the Spirit that says that, hey, your freedom is not so you can do just anything you want to do. It's called lawlessness. But so that you can serve the living God. So this is called liberty. A lot of uh, people, uh, Christians, theologians, pastors I know, uh, they'd rather use the word liberty than the word freedom. But it is the, the two are interconnected. We have the freedom to choose, the freedom to reap what we have sown, whether it be good or bad. So these are, this is part of the inalienable rights, if you will. The second one <coughs> is impartial justice. It's the right to impartial treatment under the law. It's based on divine standards and resulting laws. These two passages, Galatians 2.6, Romans 2.11, and the passage in Exodus 23. See, what, what has just happened in Exodus 23? Exodus 20 is the Ten Commandments. So the law is just now getting revealed to Moses and through Moses. And right there up at the front, judges are not to take bribes. That's a principle that's universal. doesn't matter where they are, what country, wherever they are. It it, it says uh, in the two passages, Galatians and Romans, there is no partiality with God. You choose for him, you choose against him. And that's, that's where it starts. And so government should act accordingly. Now, that means judges... It's not just money. When it talks about judges are not supposed to take bribes, I believe this has application. Judges are not about a public pressure. You know, the mob mentality often is wrong. It's been wrong so frequently throughout the course of history. You don't want to uh, you, you don't want to condemn somebody or set them free based on public opinion. Wouldn't it be terrible? If we started uh, letting people go or incarcerating them based on the recent polling, that just is ridiculous. The laws are supposed to be obeyed. The judges who have the responsibility to fairly adjudicate those laws are to uh, carry those out. That's what's supposed to happen. There should no be, should be no elites. There should not be any above the law. Um, when whenever we started finding out that that uh, the federal government decided, hey, we're going to make laws for everybody else, but we're going to exclude ourselves in these things, we should have thrown a shoe. The populace should have thrown a shoe at that point in time and said, that's wrong. That is not the way that it's supposed to be because that violates inalienable rights. Now, there's certain things that make a lot of sense because 
not everybody is fair and not everybody is just and not everybody plays by the rules. And so they made some uh, laws to go along that said a sitting congressman can't be indicted for a misdemeanor or whatever it was while they are in, uh, while they're in session. Uh, that uh, not a bad idea because you don't want somebody headed to a vote, an important vote, and be pulled over and locked up for improper lane change or something that doesn't make a whole lot of difference. That was a good type of law to keep, to keep sin natures of others at bay. But then when it starts getting used um, in the wrong way, uh, I long time ago, I was back in high school tooling around in my convertible and uh, <clears throat> lived right there by the state capitol building and I was coming up Lincoln Boulevard headed north and I got up about 50th Street, a lot of you know where that is, 50th and Lincoln Boulevard and two guys came blowing up by me uh, just racing each other and these were two of our congressmen that had just gotten <laughs> out of the legislature and went by. So I'll tell you the rest of the story one of these days, but I thought I could outrun them and I couldn't. But anyway, <clears throat> they had a head start on me. <laughs> Judges should not bow to political correctness. See, that's a set of things that are not even really laws because PC means that words start getting changed and when the words start getting changed, the laws start getting changed, and they change law without changing law. That's what they've tried to do to the Constitution. We should be, as a citizen of the United States, judged, first of all, based on the Constitution of the United States. That's the way it should happen. So when you look at the, the uh, different amendments that go through, uh, that we have. We know the right to free speech, right to freedom of assembly, and, and uh, the right to freedom of religion, right to keep and bear arms, right to have the, you can't have the government just come in and seize your property and use it. That's one of those little amendments that gets tucked in there. And then you don't have to incriminate yourself. There's in amendments there that are just a whole lot of common sense. But when they start redefining the law, the, the words. That's how they start changing the laws without changing the laws. And that's a mark of a wicked country. You can't call it anything else but. Impartial <clears throat> justice is one of, those, one of those rights. We also have the right to personal security. This is a right to protect yourself. Personal and governmental both from enemies within and enemies without. That's part of why the oath that they take is a, uh, for police officers, law enforcement, is to protect and defend against all enemies, foreign and domestic. That's part of what they, they talk about. But see, when they start redefining what's an enemy, a domestic enemy, and start redefining someone's freedom of speech as, as terrorism, there's a problem that, that is there. But we have the right to personal security. The right to protect ourselves. That's taught all the, way, uh, all the way back prior to the flood. You got the right to protect yourself from people within and as a government from people without. Israel, all, they didn't have to have uh, an issue of first blood before they could respond. What they, uh, what they needed was a threat. 
if someone threatened to go after them under the Mosaic law, that's all they needed. They didn't need to wait until one of the tribes was half wiped out by drawing first blood before they responded. They could come together and respond to threats. Personal security <clears throat> and I'm going to put honest capitalism. <clears throat> this is the ability to reap from, from your labor. Prosperity that comes through personal responsibility. It's, it's quite interesting. I think we were talking about it at breakfast the other morning about Proverbs 6. Great passage. It says, go to the ant, O sluggard. I love that. Oh, sluggard, it's a classic old English term. We don't use enough, I guess, here. Go to the ant, oh, lazy person, and learn from its ways. What does it do? It stores up in the summer to have enough in the winter. It's saying there's some practical wisdom. When we get to the parable of the, the ten virgins in the second, second session this morning, we're going to see that there is a use of the word there. They translate it prudent, and that's a practical wisdom. And that's what go to the ant, O sluggard, is about. To store up is to have some practical wisdom. It's activities that carry out wisdom that's not, in, not just intellectual. Because wisdom is normally, Sophia, it's normally, normally an intellectual word that indicates you know how things fit together and how to use them. But the phronimos word that is used is a word for practical wisdom, which means it's a good idea to store up for the lean times. It's a good idea to have some reserves for the lean times. That's a, that is a good thing to do. It's a practical wisdom. But an honest capitalism, <clears throat> this, is, this is prosperity through personal responsibility, ownership of private property, and the right to accumulate wealth and a proper taxation. Now, the reason honest is put in here with uh, capitalism is because dishonest gain is thoroughly condemned throughout Scripture. Okay? <clears throat> dishonest gain, greed. James chapter 5, in the last days, your rich, ultra-rich, will be the great men of the earth, is what it says. And how do we know they're greedy? <clears throat> They withheld the pay of the laborers who mowed their yards. That's what it said. So it says that some of the, the hardest workers out there, some of the people who work for the lowest wages, they were even withholding pay from them. That's greed, and that's improper capitalism. <clears throat> A person that makes money by lying, that's not an inalienable right. To, to lie, cheat, and steal. I, <clears throat> I know none of you have ever run into someone attempting to scam you before, but <clears throat> it's um, all over the place anymore. They've turned it into an art form, actually. It's amazing some of the stuff you get in the mail. And you look at this in the mail, and you go, you just won $10 million. I got a phone call one time from Publishers Clearinghouse that we'd won the big prize. And, uh, you know, that's always a good 7000 a week for life. is not a bad deal. Okay. I know you, we, we don't need that personally, but we know things that we could do with it. So you start thinking about 7000 a week for life, fifty-two, three $364,000 a year. That's pretty good money. 
not chump change anyway. And so <clears throat> here it is. And so you start talking to this guy and then he goes, and I need you to send, go down to your local Walgreen, Walgreens and get a, um, take out a money order and send it to me because we've got to pay the taxes on a small portion of this up front. <laughs> I went, all this trouble for a scam? <laughs> you really think this is going to work? Goodbye. Don't call me back. But that's the way they do it. They get smoother and smoother. Heard last night, you know, we get stuff on the television all the time about, oh, don't rent, be careful of Craigslist and rental properties. Because there's a bunch of people on Craigslist that, that list other people's rental properties, real rental properties, as their own and all kinds of pictures. And you better hurry because the market is a hot market right now. If you want it, you better, you better get on it. Okay, you need to wire me money. You don't need to see it. You just need to wire me money. And the answer to that should be no. <laughs> don't do that. Don't do anything like that. And uh, one one poor lady got cheated out of over $3,000 for a couple months rent and deposits and everything else. You just, and see, that is illegal gain. It is dishonest gain. It is flatly condemned in Scripture. But a, a nation that is righteous and just should give people the right and ability to be able to make money honestly and legitimately without, uh, without undue or overbearing taxation. Now, does the government have the right to tax? The answer is yes. And that's Romans 13. It's even spelled out there. And has governments taxed properly throughout the history of the world? No. Just look at them. What, was the, what were the Jews upset about? Why did they hate Matthew so much? Because he was a Jew collecting taxes for the Romans. And what did the tax collectors do? They got all they could get because they kept a part of it. That's what they did. That's why they were so hated. He was collecting taxes from his, from his own people. Now, <clears throat> this is... Uh, Improper taxation. You know, the interesting thing about the, about the word is Christians are called to function as Christians with honor, integrity, character, and all that, no matter the political system they find themselves under. Okay? That's what we're called to do. Um, was that skip a rope or something? Henson Cargill, back when we were kids cheat on your taxes don't be a fool then what's that they said about the golden rule y'all remember that line quite a line because if parents evidently were cheating on the taxes don't be a fool but what's that they said about the golden rule now we're supposed to do things honorably above board that's the way we're supposed to do it an honest capitalism now responsibilities <clears throat> These are also defined by the Almighty. See, rights are defined by the Almighty to be encouraged, but the responsibility, responsibilities are be, to be encouraged by governments. Okay, what are the responsibilities? First is respect for authority. And when we start looking at things now, I find it fascinating 
that the Supreme Court can issue a ruling and, and suddenly the executive and legislative branch feel no compulsion to follow the ruling. They just disobey. And that goes filters all the way down to state and local governments. Somebody that has the authority to make a law and they make the law and then people just don't obey it. Now, any law that violates the Constitution of the United States is null and void not to be obeyed. Our founding fathers said that. But you have to know that if it violates the uh, Constitution of the United States, you have to know the Constitution. And they don't even want to teach that in the schools anymore. They, and why don't they want to teach it? They don't want people to know about it. Because if they don't know about it, it can be twisted easier. Romans 13, we're going to take a closer look at here uh, in the course of this study. But for right now, it says, Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Now, we have the issue of directive and permissive will, and when we go through this with a little more detail here in upcoming weeks, then we're going to look at why do we know this is permissive will of God that a lot of these are established. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. So if you oppose authority, there should be, in any kind of righteous government, there should be a, there should be a response there a righteous response. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior. A lot of people are saying Paul's writing this because he's in Rome. And he's saying, he, he, he writes it. This is written by the Holy Spirit and it's done beautifully. It's done beautifully. He's, they're not a cause of fear for good behavior. But who defines good? You want to play God and define good and twist it all around? Do you have no fear of authority? That's the question. Do what is good and you'll have praise for, from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. If you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. It's a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. What Paul is just saying there is he's talking about a righteous government in a, in a beautiful way even though the Roman government they were under was anything but righteous. But in the course of this, he's able to point out what's righteous and what is not, and at least give them something to think about. Wherefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but for conscience's sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them. Tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom is due, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. See, he's saying, render to everyone what is due to them. So there should be a respect for authority. Now, <clears throat> we were taught that as kids. We, we don't have any real young kids in here now, but you and I were taught that, I believe. I mean, our parents started off teaching us, if you get a spanking at school, you're going to get another one when you get home. Yeah, you, you know what I'm talking about there. And then there were no more spankings at school. I had a sixth grade teacher called 
His last name is Alexander. He is a professional wrestler before he became a teacher. Wrestled under Alexander the Great. And he asked for a letter and got letters from all the parents for permission to spank their children. And he had a board as a one by two, and it hurt. <laughs> it was about that long. And <clears throat> you got out of line. <clears throat> You had pulled up to the front of the class for the administration of the discipline. Now, you did get to put your initials on it with hash marks. <laughs> Some people started more than one line. <laughs> but, but it got to the point that when he said something, he taught us, do it. Respond. Don't stop. Don't question it. Do it. Because there's some things that you need to respond to quickly. And you need to respond to correctly. And he, had, he said, I want you to watch me. I want you to pay attention to me. I am the authority in this class. He said, if I start counting one, two, three, four, and I get to ten. Then you get, and you're still standing up and talking, you get a swat. And he had us trained. It didn't take very long to do that. He wouldn't even say it out loud anymore. It'd be, and he'd just start, just like that, clicking it along on his fingers. And somebody go, he's counting, he's counting. And like ants scatter into their seats. It was effective. But what did he do? He taught authority. He also was an official called football and basketball games. And he was one of the fairest I've ever seen as far as giving things out, calling penalties and things like that. So that is the kind of teaching that we need. Teachers taught authority. Coaches taught authority. And by the time we got out of high school, people may know, I know a lot of guys in my school didn't like the cops at all. And, uh, in fact, one of them was such a mess, he ended up getting shot and killed by one in Dallas because he just re refused to obey authority no matter what it was. Talented athlete and just a, a rebel is all he was, <clears throat> which was a shame. It was a shame to do that. But some people just reject authority. Some people reject it, and discipline is administered, and they learn to get through it. It used to be part of what the military was about, to teach authority. Not a blind obedience to authority, but respect for authority and being able to, to do that. Respect for authority is something that we should be taught early on. Uh, whenever we tell our children, stop, we should teach them to stop right then. Not stop on the fourth or fifth time. Because... Teaching them that is so very important. And I know the teachers are handcuffed right now because they can't do anything. I used to football coach in high school. Now, see, that was grade school, Mr. Alexander. But the football coach in high school, <clears throat> an assistant principal, sometimes guys would get out of line in high school. <clears throat> They'd take them into the office, turn on the loudspeaker, and you'd hear the SWATs. These are high school kids. <laughs> Didn't happen often, but it happened enough <laughs> to 
that teach the importance of respect for authority. Now, <clears throat> respect for authority, the second responsibility is adherence to moral standards. There are divine standards concerning sex and social ethics. The rule of law should be equally applied to everyone. And what you find in every society is where there is a disregard for sexual morality, ethics is soon going to follow. Now, <clears throat> it is a way of thinking that leads to worse and worse things. An adherence to moral standards. <clears throat> this <clears throat> was written by George Barna's wife. <clears throat> and it's a, it says, Christianity in this nation is rotting from the inside out, states Mrs. Barna. MTD is essentially what I would call fake Christianity. <clears throat> now I had to stop and look up MTD, figure out what it actually was, because I thought I was pretty well informed. This actually came about in 2005, and it grew out of the, what is called the Emergent Church Movement. The Emergent Church, there's a lot of them around this town right now, and what, what is MTD? It is moralistic, therapeutic deism. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. Now, you put these together, and she says, her response is, people that, churches that are part of this, are part of fake Christianity. Because it has some Christians, Christian elements in it, but it is really not biblical. It is not Christian. What is <coughs> moralistic therapeutic deism? Miss Barney answers, <coughs> the moralistic perspective is we're to be good people and to try to be good. Okay, but good has all kinds of definitions of meaning. The therapeutic aspect is everything is supposed to be geared to making me feel good about myself. Ultimately, everything is to make me happy. Deism is the idea that God created the world but has no direct involvement in it anymore. Deism is God created the world, man fell, and he hadn't had much to do with it ever since. That's a deist view of theology. Basically, according to MTD, there is a distant God who just wants everyone to be nice and the purpose of life is to be happy. And American Christians who have adopted this philosophy have elevated personal decisions, definitions of right and wrong above any objective standard of truth like the Bible. That's coming out of the emergent church mtd now what what does that mean that means that if you are involved in sin just embrace your sin and don't worry about ever getting it fixed that's what it means that means if you are involved in homosexuality just embrace the fact that you are a homosexual it's what it is and don't do any battle with it whatsoever it applies to other things if you're an adulterer what's the big deal about it. It's, it's a moralistic, therapeutic. When they go to church, they want to be, lead, 
they want to leave feeling good. Why are there not any sermons to speak of about the devastation of sin? And sermons about what is sin? What violates God's standards? His standards are really clear throughout the scripture and over and over he warns against immorality, impurity, sensuality. He warns against these works of the flesh and he warns against this stuff that comes out of the heart of man, precede evil thoughts, murders, adulteries. We, we find these constant warnings. What do we need to be saved from if there is no sin? See, that's what the devil has done. He has taken sin and tried to say it doesn't exist. Really, even if you're a great sinner, which we all are, you don't need to worry about it. You don't need to do any battle with the works of the flesh at all. In fact, a lot of the, the counselors are blaming uh, mental illness on Christians. They are. Why are they blaming it on Christians? Because we have a moral standard of right and wrong prescribed by the scriptures. And so if people are mentally unstable, it's because they haven't been permitted to fully express themselves the way they want to do that. That's the culture we're in. That is called lawlessness. That's what it is. It's an immoral culture built on lawlessness. Now, these responsibilities are an adherence to moral standards and they they should be there the uh, <clears throat> last one is uh, uncoerced generosity we actually have a responsibility to be generous See, there's nothing in scripture that it that condones selfishness I think about Philippians 2 3 it comes to mind right away, do nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, let each of you regard the other as more important than himself. Now, <clears throat> that's, that's quite a statement. The context there is become Christ-like. Because it was when Christ came, he didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give, his self, give himself a ransom for the many. Jesus did not have to leave heaven. For us. But he chose to. And he chose to because that was the only way of redemption. That was laid out. Now what are we supposed to do as we become Christ like? Willingly use our resources to benefit other people. Especially those in need. Remember the big argument in Galatians 2. Paul and Peter got into over the issue of circumcision. And it says. And whenever they finally parted company. They decided to do good to the poor. And they left it there. They could at least agree on that. And then they came together. And worked together better throughout the years. But early on in the ministry. After Paul had become an apostle. And called an apostle. And then they had this war. And Paul was label all these things even by a lot of Christians and all that they had the confrontation there and so <clears throat> after that things get, got better but an uncoerced generosity see that's the New Testament uh, the law of tithing was put in in the Old Testament under the Mosaic law and it was designed to run the nation of Israel it was a taxation a form of taxation but above the tithe there were gifts and offerings that were to be brought as well. These were the over and above type, types of, of offerings. 
And <clears throat> the, what, did, what do we find in the New Testament? 2 Corinthians 9, starting in verse 5, Paul says, I'm coming there and let your gift not be affected by covetousness. There he's taking up an offering to take to the Jerusalem saints. He told them, get a couple of guys ready to follow me there to be sure that the offering taken here for that purpose is used for that purpose. He made himself accountable and, and set them up where they would have somebody to verify that where that offering went and how it was, how it was used. And then he says, let each man give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly nor out of necessity. For God loves a cheerful giver. Even under the Mosaic law and under the tithe, he didn't want it out of duty. He wanted it out of love. Generously. So uncoerced un generosity. We have those responsibilities. I think we start looking at the, the welfare state that's been developed within a lot of nations, not just our own. And, uh, but uh, in our own, with the number of churches we had, we should have been able to take care of people a lot better than we did. Because once they get connected into the government, it's very hard to get them out of it. Churches are the ones that should have been helping the poor all along. All along. But no, we'd rather build cathedrals and tributes to ourselves. Anyway, nations should model the character of God. Model the character of God. Kingship and sovereignty. See, that's what a nation is about. You can have a king, you can have a chancellor, you can have a president, <clears throat> you can have all those different uh, figureheads and titles that are up there, but basically somebody has the authority. And they should make righteous laws. How do we know they're righteous? They're in line with God's thinking and administer penalties for failure. Also to appropriately display grace and mercy. That's what a king does. He has the authority as the power to do what? Make laws, to administer laws, to display grace and to display mercy. Now that is kingship. That is a nation. <clears throat> it's interesting that God wanted nations because the cultures are so different around the world. They were different after the, after the dispersion from Babel into the 70 nations. They were already different. They were different by language. They became different by race as that, as that uh, developed. They, it's, it's amazing how different they already were. People have cultures, so in a more localized area, there needed to be a government to deal with that particular culture of people. Kingship, righteousness. Okay? Righteousness is aligning, in aligning laws of the directive will of God. And we don't want them to be moralistic, therapeutic deism. We want them to come right out of the, the mouth of the Almighty as to what he sees as right and what he sees as wrong. If you're talking about moral issues, moral issues should be set by the highest authority, not by the common viewpoint of the people. Because most of the people in the world are unsaved. And they don't have the right view of God. But the nation should es establish righteous laws. There should be justice in the fair and impartial treatment of everyone under the jurisdiction of the authority. And we just looked at that in Romans 13. Shouldn't be any teacher's pets. 
Shouldn't be any elites that are above the law. Should not be one injustice used to try and right another injustice. You, you, you don't fix problems that way. You do that which is just. There should be love in a nation. An effort to love God and love other people with a spiritual love. You know, there's no nation can be built on the premise of hating one another. It'll self-destruct before it ever becomes, before it ever becomes a nation. Even dictators try to put in the subjects have to love one another and love him. They kind of do it backwards. But the love should be the love of the love of God and the love of other people. Eternal life should be lived out in everyday activities, although not necessarily easy. You know, what is your eternal life going to be like? Well, I know one thing. No matter how nice your house is now, you're going to have a better one. You're going to be in the Father's house. No matter how nice a city you live in and how safe and secure it is, you're going to have a better one. See, I've read the end of the book. That's, that's, where, it, that's where it is. Eternal life. That, that we live our life in the light of eternity. That's what nations should be doing. We have omniscience. Omniscience. That tells us, and this is a nation. How does this apply to a nation? God knows all our failures and mistakes. Those in positions of authority, acting unjustly, taking bribes, misusing their power and authority, they just think God doesn't notice or God is not there. But he's there. You know, Sodom and Gomorrah thought they got away with it, didn't they? They didn't at all. Only for a period of time. And then her sins piled up as high as the heavens. And God administers Justice. Omniscient says that you can't hide. There's no need to try and hide from the living God. Omnipotent says that when he gets ready to carry out his discipline, he has all the power he needs to do so. And if we look at his gentle nature, he has the ability to direct that specifically. Gentleness is power under control. So he knows exactly what to do. Omnipotence. We find omnipresence can't escape his observation you know we we're starting to get some idea now because there are cameras everywhere have you noticed that everywhere you go there's a camera if you watch a cop show on tv they just go from camera to camera to camera to camera you know yukon wanted to know if you have a security system with cameras can they have your passcode so they can track people i respectfully declined <laughs> because it was not a law but that's how about big brother watching you and the what drives me crazy is i mentioned something and the next day i get an ad you notice that they are listening folks not making that up you hear that i know you're still on down there <coughs> They are listening because uh, when you can talk, what were we talking about the other day? We talked, I was talking with my mom one time about toilet seats. And I started getting ads for toilet seats the next day. And then, <laughs> anyway, 
omnipresence, uh, immutability. The nation should realize the master's coming back one of these days and he's going to hold everybody accountable. And he is going to come back and defeat all of his enemies. And I don't think that's hidden and part of the mystery doctrines only known by the church. I think there's a sense that God exists and one of these days he's going to render judgment on everyone. Remember he did say, revenge is mine, I will repay. And veracity. Veracity is knowing that his word is truth. And when he speaks, it is truth. And that tells us there are absolutes. There are things that we need to hold on to as absolutes, revere as absolutes, and do our best not to deviate from. So a nation, a righteous nation, should try to set it up in a way that recognizes God and who he is. It would be amazing if, if countries would, would actually ever do that to see what they would look like. In fact, it's going to happen in the millennial kingdom. But it would have been nice for it to happen sometime this side of it. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you for this day, your mercy and love. We thank you for your blessings, your test. Father, we do thank you for the country in which we live. Father, we have made as a country a lot of mistakes. And I'm sure we're going to make a lot more. But Father, I pray that we will uh, be people who rise above all of that. That we will be your lights in the middle of this darkness. That we will have straight information in the middle of a crooked and perverted generation. Father, we pray that we will be what you have called us to be. Righteous, honorable, and lovers of you, the Almighty. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.